BakerBots LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Welcome to the Environmental Evolutions Podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of environmental law and policy. I'm your host, Megan Burge, coming to you from Joshua Tree, California. Today, we're bringing you an update episode on an emerging contaminate that is dominating the litigation, regulatory, and legislative arenas. And frankly, that's saying something. Referred to as forever chemicals, PFAS are a family of over 600 per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances currently in commerce. All right. Last spring, my partners Alexander Dunn and Stephanie Bergeron-Purdue joined me to talk about what PFAS are, why we're concerned about them, and how they're being regulated. So much has happened over the past eight months in the world of PFAS. And also, can y'all believe that we're at the end of 2021? And pleased to welcome them back today. We're going to cover top developments and also look out to 2022. So with that, welcome back, Alex and Stephanie. Thanks, Megan. It's great to be back. I'm going to say, thank you very much, Megan. So first, for anyone who hasn't listened to our last PFAS episode or missed Jeff Oliver and Trevor Noah's late night discussion on PFAS, yep, it's that cool. A quick reminder, what exactly are PFAS and why are we concerned about them? So, Megan, PFAS is an umbrella term for the per- and polyfluoroalkyl chemical family of substances. And this family of substances have been made since the 1940s for consumer and industrial products. They have a variety of very appealing features. They help products become water-repellent, heat-resistant, and non-stick. And as such, they've been used in a lot of products particularly firefighting foams, as coatings on clothing, furniture, even food packaging, and a lot in electronics, as well as in the making of other chemicals and other products. I mean, really, PFAS's winning properties, which is that they, they keep that greasy burger from soaking through the wrapper onto your pants, you know, their their resistance to oils and greases and water. The way they do that is because they have these crazy strong bonds between the carbon and fluorine molecules. And that strong bond is kind of why we're talking about them today. What makes them really good is what also can make them really bad. That bond makes them really hard to break down in the environment and it makes them essentially persistent and bioaccumulative not only in soil and water, but in the human body and in fish. Studies have shown possible connections between exposure to PFAS and a variety of adverse impacts on human health. So last March when you and Stephanie joined me, we really covered the landscape on PFAS regulation and science. And thank you very much, Alex, for that amazing summary of a very big explanation of what PFAS are. But it's fair to say a lot has happened since then, right? Megan, a lot has happened since the spring with new state legislation and regulations, significant federal actions, key litigation and legal decisions on PFAS. 
because when we last spoke, we compared the state and regulatory landscape for PFAS to the Wild West with a bunch of different approaches. How are states making headway on this topic? So Megan, at least seven states have taken major steps to regulate PFAS since last spring, and more have initiatives in the works. The state actions are primarily focused on setting allowable levels in drinking water or levels at which additional investigation and testing for PFAS has to occur, inventory and regulating PFAS containing firefighting films, and phasing out various consumer products containing PFAS, such as carpets, food packaging, and more. Specific to Texas, the TCEQ is in the midst of updating its toxicity data for 16 PFAS compounds. As a refresher from last time, TCEQ established remediation, soil, and groundwater levels in 2011. The deadline for submitting toxicity studies was back at the beginning of December. It will take a minimum better part of 2022 before TCEQ has completed its review. Okay. Seven states in eight months. All right, that's pretty active. But focusing on legislation for a minute, Stephanie, can you give some examples of some of the new state legislation that has been passed? Yeah, for sure. Delaware, for example, has passed a law in October of 2021 to establish maximum contaminant levels for two common PFAS compounds, PFOA and PFOS. This will have a notable impact in the future uses of these PFAS in Delaware, as well as cleanup obligations and litigation risk pertaining to past use of PFAS. Delaware Senate also passed a bill prohibiting the use of certain firefighting phones, continuing PFAS in non-emergency situations. California, July, focused on carpets and rugs containing PFAS as, quote, priority products. By the end of this year, carpet and rug manufacturers with products containing any PFAS must notify the state and decide to remove the PFAS, no longer sell the product in California, or study alternatives. The state of Washington banned PFAS on four types of food packaging if alternatives were available. And this year, the state confirmed that there are indeed alternatives, and the ban will go into effect in February of 2023. All right, carpets, food packaging, and water are front and center. Let's talk about firefighting foams. Yeah, so I'll chime in on firefighting foams. So PFAS, as you've heard, are added to different kinds of firefighting foams because of their superheat resistance. They're really, really effective for hot fires, gasoline fires, oil fires, jet fuel fires. And PFAS-containing foam is typically referred to as aqueous film-forming foam. But since that's hard to say fast, we call it AFFF. So in an emergency situation, what happens is significant volumes of this AFFF foam mixed with water, you know, it covers the site, covers the fire, and of course can move off-site with the water and the drainage get into groundwater, surface water, soil, and then it kind of persists in the environment. So AFFF cleanup, exposure to the workers, the firefighters, and people who are using those water sources for drinking, property damage cases, they're being brought all over the country. All right. 
We're going to put a pin in those cases for just a minute and we'll come back to them in a bit. But can you talk a little bit about why it wouldn't make sense to just ban the PFAS containing foams? You know, there's been a lot of talk about banning PFAS containing foams, but we have a bit of a replacement issue here. So a minor detail, but an important one. So yes, since we talked in the spring, California, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, they've all passed laws prohibiting the use of foams except for super emergency situations. Ohio, Delaware, New Jersey proposed similar legislation. Even the FAA, the Department of Defense, are looking for substitutes. But right now, as research is ongoing across the government to find replacements, there aren't too many out there yet. So Alex, you mentioned research there just now. Are there dollars available to make progress on PFAS? You know, it's because everyone's talking about PFAS, you're, the dollars are, are flowing. So the recent infrastructure bill signed into law by President Biden has $10 billion, with a B, $10 billion for PFAS activities at water and wastewater plants. And the military funding bill, which of course has to pass every year, it's called the NDAA. Um, and hopefully before the holiday recess, we'll see the next NDAA passed. But typically, those bills have had language about PFAS in them because so many military bases used firefighting foams. Uh, and there are PFAS cleanup dollars in those uh, NDAAs. And we're starting to see additional provisions around notifications, testing, and procurement bans. So, you know, it's not just the NDAA and the infrastructure bill. Believe it or not, there's over 100 different bills in Congress that touch on PFAS. And most of them are trying to get EPA to accelerate its commitments in their PFAS roadmap. Well, Alex, that's actually a perfect transition. Stephanie, can you tell us about what's in the PFAS roadmap and where is it planning to take us? Um. Yes, in October of EPA, and this had been long anticipated, EPA released its strategic roadmap um, for PFAS, which outlines the key actions that EPA intends to take and the target dates for each action. And this, this plan runs from 2021 to 2024. The roadmap is framed by three primary goals, research, restrict, and remediate. These terms are fairly self-explanatory. Research focuses on understanding the exposure and toxicological effects, incorporating the best available science. Restriction is based on preventing PFAS from entering the environment at levels with an, in, with an adverse impact. And remediation is focused on cleanup of PFAS contamination. Regulatory initiatives in the roadmap um, identified by EPA include enhanced PFAS reporting under the Toxics Release Inventory, as well as designating certain PFAS and the circular hazardous substances. Also, another major regulatory action being watched um, occurred in October, likewise, of 2021. EPA responded to a petition from New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. EPA announced that it will start rulemaking to clarify that PFAS can be addressed through the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, or RICRA, and that it will consider adding four types of PFAS as hazardous constituents subject to RICRA. And as context, New Mexico has had former DOD facilities. It is in the process of remediating. I'm going to continue on this roadmap discussion, Stephanie. And, you know, another issue that we should keep an eye on from that 
that um, EPA plan is its proposal to develop effluent limitation guidelines for major industrial sources that discharge to surface waters and these sources use PFAS in the manufacturing. This is called Preliminary Plan 15, and some of the facilities we're looking at are organic chemical manufacturing, plastics, and synthetic fibers, and pretty soon we're going to start seeing EPA move to putting technology-based regulation on larger dischargers that use PFAS. Another note from the, the roadmap, and this is a state perspective, is EPA's intent to and I'm going to quote from the roadmap here, is to leverage MPDS permitting to reduce PFAS discharges to waterways by proactively existing, by using existing MPDS authorities to reduce discharges of PFAS at the source and attain more information through monitoring on the sources and quantity of PFAS discharged by those sources. So that's a, that's a big leveraging um, on the part of EPA for states that implement the NPDS program. And that is expected in winter of 2022. With regard to the Safe Drinking Water Act, EPA announced in March of 2021, it's requiring the collection of sampling data from public water systems on 29 PFAS compounds with the data collection effort spanning from 2023 through 2025. At the end of our podcast in spring, I posed a what-if scenario regarding PFAS and in the context of water quality standards, fast forward to the present and you'll find an EPA's roadmap that intends to publish final recommended ambient water quality criteria to protect aquatic life by winter of 2022 and human health by the fall of 2024. And for the water types, what comes after WQS, TMDLs, which in this context does not mean too many dry lawyers. <laughs> There's such thing as too many darn lawyers. Also, mom humor on this podcast is real today. All right. We're going to break here for two quick PSAs. First, we're going to make sure to link the roadmap in the show notes so y'all can get a full picture of EPA's actions. And then two, listing PFLA and PFLS as a hazardous substance under circle that's a big, and I'm going to say date here because we're G-rated on this podcast, a big damn deal. You know what, Megan? That is a big dang deal. It really would be. Um, everyone's been talking about it. In fact, this would be the first use of EPA's CERCLA 102 authority to add a hazardous substance just because of CERCLA. Usually, hazardous substances come from the other statutes. They come from water, from air, from RICRA. So this would be a first time ever. And the agency seems pretty committed to moving in this direction. What would happen if PFOA and PFOS became hazardous substances under CERCLA? Well, first off, there'd be reportable quantity release notifications. It would empower investigations. It would allow EPA to use the Superfund to clean up contaminated sites that don't have potentially responsible parties. And it even could lead to reopening closed Superfund sites where PFAS weren't originally part of the cleanup. So this is, yes, you're right, a pretty dang big deal. I think you just made many listeners break out the cold sweat, especially with that reopening of a closed site, Alex. You know, it only takes a decade or two to get one of those done. All right, so the regulatory front is going to be busy. 
Um, as this is a legislative field, let's go back to the discussion of litigation. I will jump right in here, Megan. There, there are hundreds of cases that have been filed all over the country against the manufacturers, producers, and distributors of PFAS products. And largely these cases have been brought by the PFAS users, like their customers, especially the firefighting foam customers. There are over 1,200 AFFF cases that have been consolidated into one multi-district litigation called an MDL in the U.S. District Court for South Carolina. And these are just AFFF foam cases, and they raise so many different theories of liability. Trespass, defective product, failure to warn, property damage, and even classes of exposed individuals who are seeking medical monitoring. Okay, 1,200 cases just over firefighting foams is a lot of cases. Can you talk a little bit about how this litigation is going to work? It's pretty fascinating. The presiding judge has prioritized three cases, and they are cases where water providers are suing the manufacturers for contaminating the source water. And these are test cases. One of the three test cases will be the one to go to trial, and it's supposed to be ready to go by January 2023. So already over 80 depositions have been taken. Discovery is well underway. And all the findings that'll be made by the judge in this these test cases will kind of help inform those other thousand some odd cases in the mat in the MDL. Obviously, that's worth watching. Are there any other interesting legal decisions that have caught your eye recently? Indeed, Megan. Although suits against PFAS manufacturers and suppliers make up a majority of the lawsuits. We have also seen cases brought against carpet manufacturers and other consumer product manufacturers, paper mills and refineries, and the federal government. The diversity of defendants shows the potential for almost anyone who deals in PFAS-related products or services to be brought into litigation. I wasn't expecting carpet manufacturing to be a theme for today's episode, I've got to be honest. Okay, so what are these lawsuits primarily about? Some of the most common causes of actions come up under products liability, negligence, nuisance, strict liability, and trespass. For example, plaintiffs have brought trespass claims against manufacturers of PFAS products under the claim that PFAS has entered their water supply sources and therefore constitutes a trespass. These legal causes of action are being used to address concerns about contamination and cleanup, cost recovery, exposure and health issues, natural resources, and property damage. Thanks, Stephanie. Okay, ladies, it's that time in the episode. And I realize now that I really need to get some theme music to use for each time I say this. We need to get out our crystal balls. Alex, you're up first. What do you see for 2022 and PFAS? Well, I definitely want to see how the multi-district litigation continues to move ahead. I mean, while it was originally just for AFFF cases, lately, several non-foam cases have been rolled in. So we're not really sure what's going on there. The judge is allowing them in. And 
does that mean the MDL will become the main place for all PFAS litigation? We're going to have to see. And also, it's important to note that in November, EPA released draft toxicity values for PFOA and PFOS that are way lower than the values that they re relied on way back in 2016. So these are the numbers, the concentrations at which EPA thinks exposure to PFOA and PFOS could be toxic. And EPA is also recommending that PFOA be classified as a likely carcinogen. Now, these draft recommendations went to EPA's Science Advisory Board, and they are supposed to weigh in in March. That is something to watch. Stephanie, have you given the ball a good shake, held it up to the leg? What do you see? Well, based on my crystal ball view, I would say that watching the $10 billion and the infrastructure dollars to be how that will be used by the water community, what types of projects are invested in and how those dollars move, that's one to watch in the crystal ball. I also think that PFAS destruction guidance is going to be really important as we have volumes of PFAS nationwide and we'll need to find a way to manage the stockpiles. It's also going to be very important for regulated entities to know what the tools are that are available for analyzing PFAS as this effort by EPA and the states transitions to a regulated status. Stephanie, I have to admit, as you were going through that, I just kept thinking all of those crime novels were follow the money. So thank you, Alex and Stephanie, for joining me. I so appreciate it. I definitely think we're going to be up for part three in 2022. Hey, thanks, Megan. It's always fun chatting with you. Thanks, Megan. Appreciate all your effort on this. It is a great time. You too, ladies. For listeners who have questions about PFAS developments, clearly Stephanie and Alex are the place to go with that. Their contact information is in our episode notes, along with links to the materials referenced in today's episode, including the illustrious, infamous, famed PFAS roadmap. With that, I'm Megan Birch. Thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. For over 180 years, through 13 offices in nine countries, BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.